My name is Phil Stinson. I'm joined today by my colleagues John Lederbach and Steve Brewer. John and I are on the faculty of the Criminal Justice Program at Bowling Green State University. Steve is on the faculty of Penn State in the Administration of Justice Department. In terms of the methodology and how we collected our data, we utilize the Google News search engine and we've set up almost 50 automated searches that are run daily using the Google Alerts email update service and we collect this data in real time so I collected data starting at the end of 2004 and collected the data over the next several years frankly we're still collecting data today some seven or eight years later. Phil what was your rationale for selecting Google as the primary search engine as opposed to Yahoo or some of the other popular search engines? Well when I set this up originally in 2004 Google News as opposed to the Google search engine. Google News had been around just a few years. Google News was actually developed in the days after the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, when um, an engineer at Google thought about the fact that there really wasn't a place where he could get information real-time aggregated on one page, in other words, one web source or one web page. And the, as I understand it, Google News developed as a result of that or in response to that. There's actually three components here of Google News. We've got the Google News page, which generates using algorithms developed by Google a page of trending current news stories from a variety of sources across the country, across the United States, and now across the world. And there's, secondly, the Google News search engine that drives the information to the page that's developed when you look at the Google News page. So I was interested in that search engine, and it's specifically for news sources. So I was looking at the time that this is something in my mind that was in some ways similar to let's say, the, the news service of uh, Nexus, LexisNexis, or the news services of Dow Jones or Westlaw. But I didn't have to pay for it. I didn't have to have a subscription. I didn't have to pay high prices for articles, things like that. And what I thought at the time, and I think I'm right about this, is that Google sought out to include in the Google News search engine the newspaper of record at every county, so 3,214 county level jurisdictions across the United States, that they wanted to have a newspaper or a news source within each one of those jurisdictions, and they sought out the newspaper of record. So what I mean by that is, in the, the context of the court systems, generally states have designated newspapers of record in each county where official court notices are published. So if you have a corporation that is using a fictitious name, typically there's a requirement in many states that you advertise that in the official court notices published in the newspaper of record for a county. If somebody is filing for bankruptcy in some places, if somebody has a foreclosure pending against them, if somebody is a party defendant in a lawsuit but they can't locate them to obtain a service of process, they publish official notices, lawyers will, courts will publish notices. And uh, that's always in the newspaper of records. So apparently I was correct, and that was something that was considered by Google. And I've heard that from a number of sources of uh, people who used to work at Google. And that was of interest to me, that idea that I could reach the local level through a search engine that I didn't have to pay for. And then the third element was the Google Alerts email update service. You can go to Google Alerts 
and designate automated searches that are run continually. Every day they crawl the internet going through the search engines. So you can set Google Alerts up in the regular Google search engine, but you can also set them up in the Google News search engine. So we're not using the Google News page that people think of when they look at Google News on a web page, but we're using the search engine that drives the articles to Google News by way of our Google Alerts. So we're using that same search engine. When there's a hit, when any one of our 48 search terms hits on an article that meets our search criteria, I get an email, one or more emails sent to me with a link to the article or articles that best meet those search terms. And then we, one at a time, will read those articles, and if they seem relevant to our research purposes, print them out. Initially, there were several years' worth of printouts that, in graduate school, I tackled as an independent study in doing a content analysis, really as a pilot study that became the basis for my dissertation research. I wanted to know, do I have data here that can be used to study the phenomenon of interest that I'm interested in, which is police crime? And the reason why that's important is because there are no official data sources that the government currently maintains as to the phenomenon of police crime. We don't have statistics that we can look at that are readily available, up until now at least, on crime that's committed by police officers. So another way you can look at this research would be to survey research, and I just didn't think that was a very uh, reliable method to collect data on issues involving crime by police officers. So this allows us to collect data from agencies all across the country, very large agencies, very small agencies, all sorts of news sources. And in addition to the newspapers that are in the Google News search engine that are that are included there, there are also a lot of news websites from local television stations. So maybe they're a network affiliate in a local area. And a lot of the articles that we get, the initial article about a police officer being arrested, actually a lot of them come from the news websites of TV news programs, so, you know, 6 o'clock news in, in, in some small city. And then there are articles that come up, you know, maybe a few hours later, a day later in the newspapers. But that's been a good source of media outlets that are indexed in the Google News search engine. One of the things we do in collecting the news articles is we are interested in gathering articles from numerous news sources, and that allows us, in terms of the research methodology, to triangulate our sources so that we've got multiple sources, and generally that leads to helping with both reliability and validity, frankly, of our data. So even if we have a wire story, let's say it's an Associated Press AP wire story, if it's published in one newspaper, it's not necessarily exactly the same when it's published in a different newspaper. So for example, let's say a story is picked up by the AP from the uh, Morning Call newspaper in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and the same article is run with numerous papers across the country that subscribe to AP services, and they may add a paragraph of their own. They may delete several sentences. There may be some changes made, corrections to the article half a day later, that kind of thing. So it is important that we triangulate when we can and get data from as many sources as we can. So if a case is identified and you receive a notification that a article was published regarding a certain case in a certain location, do you do anything to follow up with that case over time, or if you only receive one notification, do you look for additional um, publications that Google News did not identify? Well, the first thing to point out is our definition of case, the way we use 
case in this research. Our unit of analysis in most of the studies we have done has been criminal case. So any criminal case that could end out end up with a different disposition in the criminal court. If an officer is convicted of one bank robbery, but they're acquitted of another bank robbery, that's two different cases for us. So the unit of analysis for most of our studies is not officer or individual. Most of the time, we're interested in the criminal case outcomes, and that really requires us to look at cases as the criminal court cases. So if you have different victims, you have a different case. If you receive a case that's identified by Google, and there's, say, only one published newspaper article, do you go out and look for additional articles that Google did not find? First question. Uh, second question, do you follow it up over time as the case continues to develop? Okay. So in my dissertation research, I had arrest cases where the arrest was made in 2005, 2006, 2007, so three years of data, and over 2,100 cases from those articles. And it was not until after the dissertation was over where I had the luxury of having graduate research assistants who worked with me in my research lab where they could go back and further investigate these cases. If we had a study we were doing where we knew that we only knew the criminal case disposition, the outcome of the criminal case, whether an officer was convicted or not, and let's say 75% of the cases, and we wanted to reduce our missing data on the variable of criminal case disposition, we would search the internet using a variety of different search mechanisms to try to find that. And when available, we would also go get the docket sheets from the criminal courts if we could do that electronically without having to pay for it. That's what we did for a number of years. About two years ago, it finally dawned on me that there's a better way to do this, and that is we now set up individual Google alerts, so automated searches that we follow the criminal cases once we first learn of a criminal case. We follow them real time. It may take a year or two to follow a case through from the arrest all the way through the criminal justice system until we have not only the criminal case outcome, but the final disposition as to the officer's adverse employment uh, outcome, whether they're fired or not, that sort of thing. We now can follow these cases much more closely than we could the first six or so years I was doing this research. We found that what has happened is we get many, many more stories. We're following things much more detail we're getting as we follow the cases through. We have much uh, richer data. We have the whole story where before we just knew of an arrest and we didn't know of the fallout. Now we get articles not only about the criminal case, but we'll have newspaper editorials. We'll have letters to the editors. We'll have collateral issues involving their employment. We'll have subsequent arrests that mention it. We'll have arrests involving other officers where that case refers back to uh, the first officer who was arrested in the same department earlier. So now we've developed over time a number of different ways where we can actually set up automated searches that help us collect data real time and follow these cases more closely. How do you account for the exercise of discretion by media sources on what to publish, what stories to print, what stories to follow, and what's perceived by many to be like the sensationalism of the media and their willingness to bash police officers. Well, there's an old adage with newspaper copy editors that if it, if it bleeds, it leads. 
Uh, it's the first story on the evening news if there's something gory in the news, if there's a sensational vehicular crash, an, an auto accident. That's, that's a, a big story on the evening news, that type of thing. And similarly, when we used to get newspapers from those coin boxes on the street corner where you'd put in your quarter and take out a newspaper, remember in the front of those there'd be a newspaper for that day that would be stuck in the, behind the glass of the front door that you'd open up to reach in and pick out a paper from the top of the stack. And it was always important, as I understand it from talking to newspaper editors and newspaper reporters, that it was important to have above the fold on the front page, you know, something that was going to sell newspapers. So a fire, car accident, a cop getting arrested makes, unfortunately, makes good news. So there is a tendency of newspapers in, in many places, and this may be more so in smaller jurisdictions in non-metropolitan areas and suburban areas and medium-sized cities. I'm not, I'm not so sure, but it seems that the media is pretty good about covering stories if they know that a law enforcement officer has been arrested. It doesn't seem to be something that the media is going to ignore. If anything, there's a good chance there's going to be an article, but I'm not sure that answers your question. Well, I think it does, but I think another aspect of the question would be you know, the fact that you're collecting information on cases that do involve an arrest. These are not studies on, quote-unquote, police misconduct, where there's allegations uh, that could be unfounded. These are cases in which an objective event, a yes-no event, an arrest, has occurred that isn't interpreted by you, whereas a misconduct... Here's the thing. I think it's a matter of fundamental fairness. I don't think it's fair to base our research on somebody who's having their name dragged through the mud in a local newspaper where there's some sort of complaints that may have been filed against them or somebody doesn't like them or they've been accused of some sort of misconduct but there's really a there's a denial of due process here we've got issues it's sort of the way I don't know if there's really a denial of due process but it's it's sort of the analogous way I look at it where in these cases an independent, unbiased judicial officer has signed off on an arrest warrant. There's probable minute. cause to believe that the officer yeah. committed the crime. Right, exactly. So I, I think that the, it, you talked about the issue of fairness, and I think that's important. But also, it's a methodological issue because let's say that, that it was the case that you were printing stories and studying stories on quote-unquote police misconduct. There's been loads of research literature trying to define exactly what police misconduct is and is not. And so from a research perspective, that would create difficulties because we would not know how to identify our cases in a consistent, systematic way. In the case that you use something like an arrest, it either has occurred or it has not occurred. And so there is no subjectivity in the selection of cases that involve an arrest as opposed to, say, cases that involve a subjective determination of quote-unquote police misconduct. Yeah, another way of looking at it is it's really an issue of methodological rigor. We want to have rigorous methodology here. We want to make sure that not only are we conceptualizing the phenomenon we're looking at, which is police crime, but that we're also operationalizing it. That is to say that we're measuring it correctly, that we're measuring what we think we're measuring. We're measuring what we want to study and we're not measuring something else. So here, we really are able to do that by narrowing the focus to cases where there's actually a criminal arrest. 
Now, if you want to take that a step farther, somewhere along the line, either in graduate school with a dissertation committee member or maybe early on with a reviewer in a manuscript we submitted for publication somewhere, don't remember what the context was, but somebody suggested that the appropriate thing to do, in their opinion, would only be to study cases where there was actually a conviction because in their mind, that's the only way you can study crime. And, and the answer to that is that's just not the way we, we measure crime. If you look at the uniform crime reports, the FBI, the UCR, the National Incident-Based Reporting System, those are based on incident-level arrest cases. We, and we also know for the past decades in criminological research that when you introduce conviction as the variable of interest, the biggest influence on that is prosecutorial discretion and skills and the negotiations that go on behind the scenes between a prosecutor and a defense attorney. And so that's a worthy area of study, but it's not what we want to study. We want to study the phenomena of police crime. And so arrest is actually a better gauge of that kind of phenomena than a conviction, which is really introducing a lot of court-related variables that um, are beyond the scope of our research. We do want to look at those issues involving court-related... But we don't want to identify our cases by that. No, we don't right. want to identify our cases that way. It's a way. selection of the sample as opposed to a variable that we want to look at. Well, that's a slippery slope because I would make the argument that our data set is actually a census, that it's the population of the available cases. about that because there could be an argument with that one. I don't know. Yeah. You can't well, prove that these are all the cases. but No, they're, they're all the available. These are all the cases that are available to us based on the data we've collected. Yes. And your search parameters. That's right. Yeah. So... We are interested down the road at looking at some of the case processing uh, variables and, and studying court-related things. You know, I teach a criminal courts class where we study empirical research involving the courts. And one of the things we look at there is case processing as it's treated by what we call the courtroom work group, which would involve the people who work in criminal courts every day, the court judges, the prosecutors and the criminal defense attorneys as the major players in the courtroom work group. And down the road, we're going to start looking at, we're going to have enough data to start looking at what is the effect of a criminal defendant being a sworn law enforcement officer in terms of how they're treated by the courtroom work group in charge bargaining, in charging decisions, in plea bargaining, you know, going to trial decisions, in sentencing factors, that sort of thing. Uh, focal concerns as to uh, plea bargaining and uh, sentencing. Those are those are interesting things, but you're right. They're outside the scope of what we've done so far. They're outside the scope of these, this study. These cases start with, with an arrest, and so that's... The way I have viewed this is that this data set moves beyond the accusation of misconduct and looks at the arrest. So we're not accusing or looking at the accusation of somebody we know that they have done something that has warranted enough evidence to get them arrested. Yeah, we know that a judicial officer who should be unbiased and detached, neutral judicial officer, magistrate, a judge, has signed off on an arrest warrant. So it's something more than a mere accusation. Right. And the fact is, criminologists have used arrest as the indicator for crime in multitudes of other measures. And so this is consistent with other studies in the criminological literature that looks at crime trends, specific types of crime in those trends, offender patterns of behavior, and the like.
And I look at this as the research that we're doing in the sort of the gestalt concept of all the studies we've done. It's really life course criminology. We're interested in different things that are going on, what's causing criminal activity in a police officer's life at various stages of their life. That will conclude this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast. This project is supported by award number 2011 IJCX0024, awarded by the National Institute of Justice, Office of Justice Programs, United States Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, or conclusions or recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Justice. For more information on our research, please feel free to check out our website at www.bgsu.edu forward slash police integrity lost.